Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So we yes. are now day don't know what anymore of lockdown. I tried to estimate how long we've been in lockdown uh, this afternoon and I genuinely can't remember. <laughs> There's, um, it's weird. Although... It was March... 20 something it's really weird it's a, in the last couple of days like the cars have been fucking ridiculous around here like it's the the road is back to normal now yeah around here they've like the n- amount of traffic has seen definitely seen an uptick yeah like i every day when i walk the dog i go i go across i go up the labourage road which if you live in east london knows quite a busy road and go i go across the north circular so normally I see, you know, see, and it has been mainly vans, but now it was just, there was actual traffic. Yeah, like you have to stop at mm-hmm. points because there's traffic, traffic. Yeah, because on the, on the plus side, with when lockdown first started, my dog has had quite extreme road anxiety and that's all gone now, which is mm. really good. <laughs> but yeah, it's weird. It's like um, also just in time for all the animals to start to get used to the lack of traffic. We I've seen muntjac deer a bunch of times, like really close to my house. So they're all about to die now. So it's time to invade. Yeah, but they're all going to get it's hit good. by need cars. Need to come back. Oh god. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the news has just been a constant back and forth between the media and the people. Some people, a lot of people, all of them, I don't know. <laughs> like it's there seems to be a general consensus that the the lockdown should continue, but the messaging ever since Boris got out of hospital and like came back to work mm-hmm. has been when does this lockdown end? Finally, we're gonna relax the lockdown. Here's a treat to you. You can all go back to work. Yeah. Um and yeah, every day is see how many of the front pages are parroting the government line exactly and then see what they actually do. Because at the moment it seems to be... So, for instance, like there was talk, uh, I think last week, of Rishi Sunak um, reducing the, the furlough scheme. Rish the Dish, yeah, our next prime minister. That's Tory the other House, bit. Tory housewife's favourite. That's the, yep, that's the, that's, that's the second bit mm-hmm. um, of him putting it back to like 60%. And today they announced like, oh, the furlough's going to stay the same. It's going to be extended and we'll look at it later because there was a negative reaction to the thing that was planted last week. I've and everybody s- just kind of just kind of says, oh, Rishi Sunak, isn't he doing such a good job? He's really, yeah, it's like, like Jamie, Oliver, he, Jamie Oliver, James O'Brien won't stop saying how fucking amazing he is. But um, the, one of the things I think that they, because you know, it's obvious, that it's really obvious that they leak stuff. Like painfully, I'm. I've yeah. got. I'm like. I'm pretty convinced that they leaked that it was going to be brought down to sixty percent, with no intention of actually doing that. Specifically to kind of, get like fuck up the Labour questioning today. Because they, yeah, they went maybe. in. They went in with that, and then when he was like, when it was obviously not that, and she was like, I only found out like when you were talking, what the plan. Hold was. on, how could? How could Keir Starmer possibly be wrong-footed? He's so forensic. <laughs> He's so fucking forensic. Everybody's forensic. That's the fucking thing that has really hit me over the last, like, couple of weeks or so. Like, mm. there's, there's, there are very few new ideas in British media at the best of times. 
There's not even new words. Yeah, <laughs> They've I've, run out of words. I still, I think it's really brilliant how when Peter Oban pissed everybody off by saying that, you know, essentially they're court stenographers, that they yeah. went, how dare you say that? And then quietly went, actually, if we just became full-on court stenographers, we'd have to do even less work. <laughs> we could do even less. Because sometimes we're, we're expected to ask questions. What if we don't even ask a single question? <laughs> It was, like at the beginning, I did notice that um, the herd immunity thing, that was the first big kind of talking point that was put out there to gauge mm-hmm. to gauge how it would go down. And so you had, but I think they thought, they must have thought at the time that it was quite risky because they gave it to people like Toby Young <laughs> and Julia Hartley Brewer. So you, you put the extreme thing and then see if it gets adopted by like, the Alison Pearsons of this world, mm-hmm. like those kind of like Times columnists, which functionally, if you look at the Times output, they're virtually the same. They're as like far right as someone like a Toby Young. Yeah, well, it starts off, but you, you they have a little listen. bit more establishment like uh, credibility. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But you're choosing who to leak your stuff to. And you can like, you go to the first bit to leak stuff to, and it's in like a fancy mm-hmm. private members club. It's all like oak panelling. And they're all sitting around yeah. talking, drinking port. And you can either leak it to them, or you can go down the stairs to the main bar area where they're all sort of a bit more raucous. Or you can go out into the back of the alley where they're gambling on rats fighting. And that's where you find <laughs> Toby Young and Julia Hartley Brewer declaring which stick rat in. is racially superior. And then they, they leak put the a stick insect against a crab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where they're gambling on bug fight videos on the internet from like 15 years ago. <laughs> And yeah, so like I, I can only think that they think it it will provide some kind of different thing because the herd immunity they were clearly seeing whether they could get away with it, and yeah. so seeing if they could build the kind of like alt right weight of messaging that mm. you only get from a Julia Hartley Brewer, from a radio presenter, from an LBC presenter, because you stick that video on Facebook and it mm. goes round, and then that's how you can gauge some kind of level of at least passive consent to to that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, whether you can mold that message and make people essentially do what you want to do, behave them in, in the way that you want to. Yeah. But yeah, re- now that they're kind of, things are very bad. So I think it's just past 40,000 deaths mm-hmm. today. And they're kind of trying to still keep this kind of positivity. I feel like over the last week or so, the sentimentality has maybe started to run out, especially after VE Day mm-hmm. kind of came and went. It's like you can't have any too many royal weddings in a year, otherwise the effect kind of wears off. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, naturally, sort of Starmer comes out of the gates with, uh, he said, we owe it to the VE Day generation to protect them from coronavirus in care homes. And it's like, I think it was like the... F- People are making a big deal of it as the first positive Telegraph front page in like probably since Blair. I'd imagine, well, maybe not Blair. They hated Blair. Maybe Gordon Brown. I think mm. they liked Gordon Brown a bit more. You you see him and it's like, oh no, they've already moved on from that. They've yeah. already they've they've already moved on from care homes. It, it went to protect the NHS and protect care homes. To well, they were going to die anyway. So it's it's this constant back and forth between kind of visceral cruelty mm. uh, in the in the name of the economy and. Lockdown, everybody safe, 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 safe. Protect the NHS. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And it, it, it's, it's what happens when you put literally PR people in in charge of the state. Yeah. Did you see the um the fucking uh, messaging around like the warning, uh the warning levels? 
I saw the warning levels, that they put out last week. That also the came that, and went. I, the thing that I really like, um, well, I think there is some some the mood against the government is has turned. Like LBC is pretty firmly of the position that they're muddled and don't know what they're doing. Like even Nick mm. Ferrari, because you know when you have to explain the new message solidly for like a couple of days afterwards. <laughs> I think it, it was almost, it felt like it almost didn't matter because like PR and advertising in general, the advertising industry certainly has a certain like internal inertia that just keeps it going. Hmm. You do a good job on like an advertising campaign, you do a bad job. It doesn't really matter. You get paid, whatever. Hmm. And there's that kind of logic going into that. Like I think probably in the past, even down to like say a Thatcher, hmm. you might have got some kind of adherence to the interests of the continuation of the state. Mm-hmm. the continuation of this particular policy but like rishi sunak i mean ultimately if he fails as chancellor the worst thing that happens is he gets sacked and he goes and inherits like 4.8 billion pounds or whatever he has married into mm. you know it's like he's probably got an in like they at best they probably have an interest in like continuing a particular world state of affairs that allows them to continue in their class interest but whether that's done through the state or whether that's done by them as really really rich powerful people it doesn't really seem to interest them Mm. you know yeah Yeah. that's a very uh very odd thing yeah it's all i'm finding it i've um especially since i'm like i'm better completely now and you know, it seems to be mainly that you know if I've if I've had it, then I'm probably not going to get it again. I've stopped being nervous and scared, and now I just get very angry. So, like, I haven't been on Twitter for <laughs> days. Um, which, the two genders, <laughs> nervous and angry. Well, yeah, um, well, understandably, I think, but yeah, it's like now I'm just yeah, yeah now I I try to limit my exposure. <laughs> Because it's making me, <laughs> it makes me quite mad. And it's like, especially when they do the, like, okay, with the change in the rules and, you know, people are going back to work, it is going to be completely mm. understandable. And I completely get it when any, whenever, when people completely break the lockdown rules now. Because why the yeah. fuck should I get the tube and not see my mum? Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, oh, I oh, just, it's aggravating. Well, no, no, you can see, you, you can even see, like, it's, they have put these things out, but like uh, Matt Hancock, mm-hmm. um, I think it was, um, like contradicted himself like three or four times on the press circuit the day that these uh, particular like detailed proposals for how a lockdown would end yeah. came out. And you can kind of see that it's not like the dead cat thing exactly, yeah. but it's like it's mumbling. It's going, well, uh, in order to, the, the way we're going to proceed is what? Uh, yeah. yeah, that. Yeah. Like as soon as as soon as every like because you could see um I, I mentioned to my partner when we went out shopping we were now food shopping on Saturday food shopping officer food shopping, <laughs> um, and I was like oh I bet there's going to be a shitload of people because it's not only a sunny day um yeah. but also there was that that kind of that little bit of impulse about oh the lockdown's going to be modified it's going to be loosened there'll be more stuff open well, more the stuff news to was do. full of fucking photos of VE Day shit when they were fully yep. not fucking doing fuck all apart yep. from partying um, and you can only think that the messaging has been well if everyone stayed like the two the two outcomes of this messaging are either everybody obeys it exactly and sensibly and stays in 
mm. and still observes the lockdown, or they don't. In either scenario, the government comes away because if there's a second spike, they can just say that, oh, people are ignoring the rules that we set down, yeah. given the fact that they've set down complicated and contradictory rules from the beginning. Mm. And, you know, it, you have to think that a, 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 in part, it's they're going to try and have their cake and eat it because like, that's what Boris has done all the way through. Well, yeah, he has been a prime minister exactly like he was mayor of London. And it's just... Yeah, it's it's fully just proof that everything that people were saying when he was mayor of London is true. That he is a terrible leader and really yeah. just bad at this. He's like, not he's even not... a good. He's not even good at the technocracy of no. holding together a national capitalist order. Well, he doesn't. Even, he doesn't do like he's done. Fuck all. Interviews. He doesn't do it adeptly. He's certainly. done like that address on Sunday. It was a pre-recorded mm. thing with no 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 questions. Like. Yeah. Jesus, at least Trump has the balls to tell people to like to be racist to someone's face and then walk off when they get annoyed of him. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be they can blame the people. Yeah. They can blame oh we you know, they all broke lockdown, there's no way we can do it. And yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what they're gonna do. So this week I I've been wanting to like do an episode about this for a while mm. um because i find it really really fascinating um and it's something that came and went in the early 2000s and sort of i think had like probably didn't leave much of an impact it was like indicative of of the different political and so, well, socio-political world that we lived in at the time mm. i want to talk about the ballad of michael carroll yeah uh king michael carroll chavs. if you don't know was king of the chavs um so picture the scene it's 2002 the osbournes and the anna nicole show are lighting up our tv screens <laughs> uh vanessa carlton has just released a thousand miles as well as nickelback releasing how you remind me oh, you're God. all downloading that on your kazars and on your lime wires uh and in a small town in norfolk one man's life was about to change for a bit Michael Carroll was 19 years old and wearing an electronic tag for drunk and disorderly when he bought a lottery ticket. Um, just a note before I, I get into like his whole life story. The standard thing when approaching this story particularly of, of Michael Carroll, there's this real temptation to start talking about him just in terms of taking a bunch of drugs, wrecking stuff, antisocial behavior. And from my point of view, it wouldn't actually be that kind of interesting getting sidetracked into whether his behavior was acceptable, mm -hmm. like trying to either dunk or absolve a single person of their behavior and getting to like litigating over whether like he's representative of a particular working class strand or uh, anything like that. Yeah. I think it, that kind of talk plays into this this individualized notion of class guilt and innocence that inflates the behavior of what he actually did. Mm. Um, the wording of that even makes it sound like the beginning of a Benoit documentary, <laughs> which is not my intention. Like in the grand scheme of things, his like offenses and his behavior, it was reasonably minor. Like he took a load of drugs. I think he headbutted a person. He got done for a fray and he drove some cars around um, smashing stuff up. Like yeah. not, the best behavior, but not the worst. Yeah. Like even comparing like his coke fueled rampages mm. in an attempt to prove this kind of like ruling class hypocrisy to say, oh, well, the Bullingdon Club can do it, but Michael Carroll can't. Um, misses an important point about how his actions were presented and how they sought to personalize moral failing 
in a way that tries to explain something about deindustrialized working class people in general, mm-hmm. right? So you're transferring from the individual to the general. The only way I can comment on Carol's behavior is to say that all of us have been teenagers. All of us have been horny, angry, grumpy devils. The difference when it comes to societal sanction or benefit of the doubt is where the class and social uh, element comes in. When these natural impulses aren't channeled into fighting games and discussing whether Kurt Angle should have won the WWE title earlier than he did, this is what happened. Also, I felt I I was going to try and tell this story from his uh, his sources. I read his autobiography he put out in 2006. It's called Be Careful What You Wish For. Um, His it does end in 2006 before his full story would be would unfold. Mm -hmm. Um, But the book, uh, the book's also quite confusing. It tells his story on a non chronological fashion, often making statements in one chapter, then contradicting himself. So basically, I've made the best out of it. so, uh, Michael Carroll won 9.7 million on the lottery in November 2002. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1983 in Swaffham in Norfolk. His mother worked in a canning factory in Swaffham, and his father was a Scottish RAF engineer based locally um, at an RAF base. When Mikey was 18 months old, his father was jailed for 11 years for stabbing a man at an RAF toga party. Yes, that's right, an RAF toga party toga party (laughs) yeah um in his own words uh andy carroll my dad was attending an officer's party on the base of raf whiten one friday night he had told kim carroll his wife mikey's mother that he was going to um uh, an enlisted party only so she had stayed home with their three children the event was a light-hearted affair and was listed as a toga party uh andy carroll had an altercation with a navy officer named ian warnick um who uh, there was a rumour that he was having an affair with uh, and his wife. Mm-hmm. The argument ended with Warnick leaving the party with another officer, senior aircraftswoman Jackie McNally. Carroll followed the pair to McNally's quarters and broke in. Warnock confronted him and the pair argued violently. During the struggle, Carroll drew a knife he had been wearing as part of his outfit and in an attempt to kill him, stabbed Warnock in a frenzied and vicious attack. McNally intervened, but during the affray, she also received nine deep stab wounds. wounds. Oh. An anonymous... And uh, Carol, drunk and high on adrenaline from the attack, walked out of the quarters and went home. An anonymous call brought military police to McNally's quarters, where they were both found seriously injured but alive. Carol, believing the pair to already be dead, um, started burning items of his clothing uh, in a solid fuel boiler at the quarters that he shared with Kim. He was charged and sentenced to 11 years in the military prison. After the trial was over, it emerged that rather than Warnick having an affair with Andy's wife, it was actually Andy Carroll who had been trying to get it on with Jackie McNally when he was cock-blocked, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mikey's parents divorced after Andy got out of prison and his dad moved to Swindon. He talks glowingly about his dad, saying how he used to get moody when he left after a visit. Andy Carroll passed away in 1993 when Mikey was 10, dying of a heart attack on a golf course. Mikey says, I used to talk to God and tell him that I would be good in future if he brought dad back. I didn't even believe in God all the more. So after I woke each day to find out my prayers had again gone unanswered, I kept thinking about the day he died on that golf course. He loved golf and would try often try to get me interested in it. I kept thinking that if I had taken it up, I might have been with him on the golf course and saved him. I went to my granddad's house and took some golf balls from there to the funeral. And as the coffin lay on the top of the grave, I bounced the golf balls off it. I don't really know why I did it. I just thought dad would like me to do it. 
The family were disgusted and tried to stop me, but I managed to throw everyone and felt good about what I had done before. Um, his mum, uh, after his dad died, his mum started seeing other men. Uh, Mikey attests that one of them physically abused him and on occasion would put a bolt on the outside of his bedroom door and lock him in his room in the dark. Um, his problems continued in education. In junior school, Mikey reflects that he couldn't concentrate and was labelled a problem child for falling around in class. While he was tested for dyslexia and ADHD, officially it went undiagnosed due to a filing error. In secondary school, he found it difficult to concentrate and got into even more trouble. Quote, the teachers would constantly tell me, often with a bullying attitude themselves, that I was no good, that I was a thicko, a nobody, and totally worthless. He started skipping school in order to avoid bullying and left school barely literate by his own admission with the intellectual level of an 11-year-old. His first criminal conviction came at 14, pleading guilty to burglary and theft. In the book, he re recollects that his average day from 12 to 14 was avoiding people in his house, going to school to register, and then going around with his traveller friends to go shoplifting for money. He progressed to stealing cars for joyrides. He served his first youth custody sentence in 2001 and was in court several more times in 2002. He says, I had completely lost any sense of responsibility that I may have had. I was on the road to self-destruction and now entirely convinced that what I was doing was right. No one cared about me, so why should I care about them? Fuck them. That's what I thought. And the circle kept turning. After I got out of jail, all I wanted to do was punish society for putting me through the hell of a youth custody sentence. I came out angry and determined to cause more grief. By this point, he had f fully fallen out with his mum and spent part of this time living rough. He would sleep in a local bandstand in the summer and an old outbuilding of a hospital in the winter. He would get drunk each night to get to sleep and go shoplifting to order for people who had paid 25% of the real price. One anecdote has him wandering around a scrapyard on a cold night, finding a car with the keys in and sitting in it with the heater on to keep him warm. Drinking and listening to the radio, Mikey woke up the next morning in the car suspended 10 feet above the ground. Luckily, the crane driver spotting him before the car was lowered into a crusher. Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> despite later um, reports, he did work in this period. Uh, he worked at an onion packing factory at 16, starting at 3 a.m. to get the factory bus at 4 a.m. The bus would arrive at the factory at 5.30 after picking people up from several different villages. All of the time, uh, all of the transport time was unpaid. I think it's a really like, because he's, he's not, when you think of Chavs, you think of it somewhat as a, an urban and a town phenomenon. Yeah, you often don't think of it in rural terms. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, all rural affairs are generally underreported nationally and when they are reported it seems to be like it seems to be the thing of the last couple of years of Tories and reactionaries um insisting that people should be sent to work in the fields mm -hmm. you know yeah, like definitely. like it's a, a the punishment zone i mean that yeah. uh, that guy lee anderson um the mp for ashfield who i somehow can't believe got fucking elected but there we go mm. um he said, like, let's have them in a tent in the middle of a field, six o'clock every morning, let's have them up, let's have them in the fields, picking potatoes or any current seasonable vegetables, back in the tent, cold shower, lights out, six o'clock, it's the same the next day. <laughs> I love that that's our, that's our new cat. Our new catch-all for economic crises is collective farming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, after you send all the Eastern Europeans home after Brexit, you're going to need, like, British people um, barracked in order to pick vegetables. 
Yeah, when they started talking about that. Why is that so familiar? When they started Something talking. very familiar about that. When they started I wonder if we can achieve that. it in five years. <laughs> when they started talking about that on LBC, they had so many old people phoning up saying that they'd happily do it. And it's like, I'm in my 70s. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's like it's not even that it's like obviously a coerce an incredibly authoritarian coercive measure. It's also how does that work? Yeah. There's no fucking housing left in the rules unless you're thinking people are going to migrate. No, they'll live. Oh, five, you think people are to going attend. to migrate? Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. So on Saturday, second of November two thousand two, Michael Carroll won nine point seven million pounds. Now in two thousand two money, that's four hundred and eighty five thousand pairs of cargo trousers, three point three million copies of Dirty by Christina Aguilera, or and this is going to hurt zero new Dreamcast games because they'd stop making them. Oh god! (laughs) So you've got that information, but most importantly, which lottery machine was it? Was it Lancelot? Was it because that was back when they still had names? Oh, that's a good point. I actually don't know. Oh, but see, um, that would have told us that would have like could have predicted what was going to happen to him if we knew which of the cursed machines gave him his money. <laughs> so you're saying that if you'd win the lottery from a certain machine, it was either like all good, all bad, or something else. What oh, were no, the machines they, called? It was Lancelot, I, I, they Galahad. All had, yeah, they all had names like that. But they should look at Excalibur. They should look into it and so see which which of the machines had like the highest suicide rate and shit like that. <laughs> Go on. Mikey was living part-time with his auntie Kelly and her husband Stephen working as a cover bin man for the council wearing an electronic tag from a resisting arrest charge and expecting his first child with his partner Sandra he notes that he couldn't go out and celebrate because of his curfew order. He could buy any car he wanted, but he couldn't drive because of his suspended license. And he didn't even have a bank account to put the money in. He applied for an account with Coots, the royal banker, but was turned down for undisclosed reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right after he won, Mikey was back in court almost immediately. He was fined nearly £1,500 for fair dodging on a train. Um, Mikey notes, and I think I'd probably agree... That's quite a lot. Mm-hmm. That's quite a lot of money for fair dodging. Yeah. Um, and when the papers reported that he had been working as a part-time cover bin man um, while claiming the dole, he was actually brought up in court by the DHSS, now huh. the DWP, uh, after, they, uh, after they read this. Uh, he was fined £12,000. Again, quite a lot. Seems like quite a lot of money considering he was getting probably 40 quid a week. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't unemployed until 2010. No, that's about how much I was on when I was unemployed around then. Jesus, yeah. Um, and time and again, in his telling of his first like few weeks as a as a rich guy, um, what becomes clear is that the secret to being rich isn't just having the money, but also having the societal support to be able to wield it. Um, that support, more often than not, comes in the form of ruling class solidarity um the network of accountants financial advisors institutions and even neighbors um a general effort in defense of the principle of being rich that that's that's how people don't come to the same end as as mikey carroll did that they have this organized defense whether that's from like simple theft or extortion or redistributive policies Mm -hmm. um mikey and his family had none of that experience or protection 
He says, I had no real concept. I probably have never had any real concept of what 10 million pounds really means. To me, it was just a bottomless pit of cash to enjoy. The money I won did something horrendous to all the people I shared it with. Um, he gave away about uh, two and a half million pounds to family members, um, his aunt and his sister. He gave one million pounds to one sister who was living with his mum because he didn't want his mum's partner to be, able to be able to claim any of it. Mm. Uh yeah, he gave a million pounds to his aunt Kelly and her husband Stephen, who would be he had been staying with when he won. Uh, they split up within a few months, um, and in 2016, uh, Stephen Moncaster would shoot his wife Alison dead before turning the gun on himself. I don't really know how to say that, other than that's a thing that happened. I don't particularly know that it was the money that that caused it mm. or anything like that, but that happened. Yeah, it, yeah, it happened. Um, he fell out with most of his family, um, especially those who didn't get any money. Um, others, such as uh, his partner, Sandra, who couldn't handle being around such a chaotic situation. Uh, he started getting extortion and death threats. Um, in 2003, he woke up in the middle of the night to find five of his Rottweilers dead, having been drugged and had their throats slit. Uh, he reckons he paid about £100,000 in the first few months to uh, people who were trying to extort him. Mm. He also says that the police were not interested in his case, which he attributes to his reputation. Mm -hmm. um, he recounts how he started palling around with a drug dealer who he felt could in some way protect him. Um, however, this also gave him access to a bunch of coke, mm. uh, which he then proceeded to do a lot of. Mm -hmm. um, he start. He bought a large house uh, in. I think it was. Oh, hang on. Sure he bought a large house in in Swaffham. Yeah. Um, the called the Grange. Yep. Uh, and he started hosting wild parties with a bunch of people, hangers-on, and sex workers. Yeah. He says um, there's a lot of. Um, I remember around that time because my wife's family live not far from there. Yes. And I yeah. remember it being a main fixture of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's That's like, the most interesting thing to happen since I don't know the wall trade. Well, since the Waitrose opened in Swaffham. <laughs> oh right, so it was the Waitrose, the Waitrose opened in Swaffham, and everyone was trade. like, "Ooh, wow, Swaffham's a town on the grow." And then Michael Carroll got all his money, <laughs> and everyone like, "Oh my god, he's ruining Swaffham." <laughs> Even with all of our attempts to be as balanced and as uh, non-judgmental non as possible, we still cannot resist wrecking on Norfolk. <laughs> it's fucking shit. It's so shit. <laughs> um, he quotes, drug dealers would come early so as not to let the girls see them. I would buy something in cash in the region of a kilo of Coke, 500 ecstasy tabs, 200 LSD tabs, and about a pound of good quality puff at a time. At the parties, we would just act like Roman generals. We used to have sword fights with real swords, <laughs> drink ourselves into a stupor at the same time as taking drugs. Like the the Coke was served to us Huh? Like the Royals. Yeah. That's not the first comparison you might find uh, with Michael Carroll and the Royals. Uh, the Coke was served up to us by the girls on huge solid silver platters. It wasn't long before I upgraded my habit to smoking crack cocaine as well. I don't know if that's an upgrade. I don't know if that's an upgrade that's... from Coke off a silver platter to smoking crack. That feels like an that's extreme an... downgrade. <laughs> Especially when you got the that's... money for that much coke. See, that's the kind of thing that he—that's the kind of help he could have gotten if he was hanging around other rich people. 
that's the kind of thing of saying like i really really like like ramen noodles i've really made this got this really good ramen recipe and then just going to buy instant noodles all the time yeah it is um while he had put 3.9 million into an investment bond his drug addiction led him to draw from the lump sum rather than live off the regular income incurring penalties for example, on one occasion in 2004, he withdrew £50,000 with a penalty fee of £3,000 for a mate's birthday held at the house. We had, quote, we had exactly 99 people at this party, which lasted from Friday to Tuesday afternoon, by which time we were so worn out that we slept for four days and nights solid. The ratio of girls to guys was three to one, and this was very carefully worked out. I had sex with every girl at the party as a condition of them being invited. Jesus. The money went on drugs, food, so boom, tiring. <laughs> and a gold chain for each of the girls who had to wear them around their ankles. The Romans had nothing on us. <laughs> um, he also recounts that he was uh, getting, he was drinking a lot of alcohol at this point, understandably. Yeah. Um, uh, and he, <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything. This is just a really funny quote. Um, do I drink two to three liters of cider a day? Don't make me laugh. Do I look like some down and out who lives on cheap cider? Admittedly, I did drink from large bottles of cider, but they were laced quite liberally with blackcurrant juice, and I didn't do it while walking the streets. Oh, God. <laughs> that's so beautiful. That is. That's the, that's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Like He tries to have some kind of timeline about when he got addicted to coke and when he yeah. moved on to crack and stuff like that. And then he's like, can I shock you? It's a very David Brent kind of moment. Yeah. Can I shock you? I didn't do drugs before my wife left me. And in the previous chapter, he's gone like, oh, yeah, before I won the lottery, I was popping pills on the weekend just to get through. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, you know, it, he's there's very much this kind of like notion that he's trying to simultaneously admit to what he did and provide the book with some kind of redemption narrative yeah. of him learning his lesson while simultaneously making excuses and simultaneously trying not to make any excuses at all and mm. saying it was all blown out of proportion <clears throat> i i am who i i am who i am this yeah. is just like what i do you know yeah um he does say in one of his more honest sections that he thinks he was subconsciously trying to get rid of the money um that one or two million would have been perfect for him and the more he got the more he didn't know how to use it the more he tried to just just get rid of it mm -hmm. and from november 2002 when he won the uh won the amount and january 2006 he had spent given away invested or been scammed out of a total of eight and a half million Jesus. um his behavior obviously uh pretty well documented um in june 2005 he was given an asbo by a court after it was found that while drunk he'd been catapulting steel balls from his mercedes van which resulted in breaking 32 car and shop windows uh, that was in downer market uh, he was sentenced to 240 hours of community service and a warning he could face jail time in february 2006 he was jailed for nine months for a fray it was noted in court that while being sentenced since 1997, Carroll had 42 previous offences on records. On record, in his words, in 2004, when he was still on coke, he was living with a woman named Sammy, and she and her sister went to a concert. Some blokes started chatting them up, and Sammy and her sister went into one. They called us, so we went down to the hall to sort them out. I was carrying a baseball bat and was caught on a security camera entering the hall where I stood by and watched another man assault the guy. I've heard this so many from working in clubs. I've heard this so many times. Um, 
I watched another man assault the guy Sammy had pointed out as her attacker. After 30 seconds, I turned and left. I hadn't assaulted anyone, but my presence obviously had intimidated some people. So you can see there, like, there's a perfect thing of, like, yes, I went there. No, I didn't do anything. But actually, I was probably just intimidating people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, like, classic, like, uh, male male thing. It's a male thing, I think. Yeah. Um, Maybe not exclusively male, but, you know, um, thing of trying to play all of all of those cards at once to see what ultimately gets you out of trouble. Yeah. And um, with the press coverage that he was getting, it's, it's kind of understandable that he was so confrontational. Like his Mm. life up to now had been every time he comes up in front of an authority figure, they belittle him or, or call him a piece of shit or punish him in some way. And now that he was famous and now that he was rich, um, he was coming up against the press mm-hmm. in all of their glory, like pre-Leveson as well. So this is like proper tapping phones, camping out on doorsteps, yeah. infiltrating family groups, um, that 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 level of press. Killing um, Rottweilers. Yeah. Um, and yeah, from the Daily Mail. So the Daily the he, that's how he described his his affray offence. Mm-hmm. The Daily Mail described it as Carol twenty two and three friends friends caused havoc when they burst into a Christian rock concert in Downer Market in Norfolk in May two thousand four. Two of the concert goers required hospital treatment, while other young Christians prayed for their lives. After the youths, two with baseball bats, ran amok. One of them has never been identified. <laughs> So somewhere in the middle of both of those stories, yeah. I believe there is probably what happened, not that you will ever find it out. Yeah. And I mean, the way his criminal damage, his drug taking and yeah, his, his like getting handy with people, it got turned into like he was some kind of local warlord. Yeah. You constantly had stories about his neighbors saying he's got these part these loud raucous parties. He's going around like he really loved banger racing. He really yeah. identifies with cars yeah in that particular way and so he would like set fire he admits he would like set fire to cars and he bought a patch of land just so he could have like a racing track yep i remember him and, making the racing track um also, yeah there's, there's a thing like the locals fucking despised him because of him hanging around with travelers all the time because you know yes that Norfolk, is the other element yeah they fucking hate travelers yeah um just to give you a a taste of what the papers said um at the time Uh, The Guardian in June 2005, as he became the richest man to be given an ASBO yesterday, the 22-year-old was proof that money does not change anything. That was was an actual story. It sounds like an editorial, but that was was a story. Um, The Sunday People in 2004, um, you know, it's tabloid press, but Mm -hmm. this is still pretty bad. Neighbours of the bloated, finger-flicking lottery yob Michael Carroll will be cheering now he's finally been banged up for drug offences. Imagine spending half a million quid on your home, and in Swaffham, Norfolk, you get a fair pile for that kind of money, only to find newly rich pond life like him moving in next door. Unfortunately, we will be footing the bill for his upkeep for the next few months. Carroll won nearly £10 million two years ago. It costs £25,000 a year to keep a prisoner in jail. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Fuck. So, just to give you an idea about this part of Norfolk, um, yeah. Most of the people who would buy an expensive place around Swatham aren't from Swatham. They're usually from <laughs> yeah. London. They're like from London, or they're from like some other big city, and they've got buying their or from like country- Cambridge or whatever. Yeah, buying their country place. Um, yeah, 
it's it's a bit it's oh it's it's just adds to that grossness of like oh the locals there's a there's a, just a there's a ratcheting up <clears> when it came to like talking about chavs and talking yeah. about like, like talking about the underclass once they'd seized upon it they really they really went into overdrive in a way that they don't I, I don't think they do now i mean i'm not reading a lot of fucking sun uh editorials or anything but mm. um this is this is this is a a bad one from 2006. Kevin O'Sullivan uh, writing in the Mirror um, during what could loosely be described as an on-screen interview with my hero Keith Allen. Uh, this was referring to the documentary he did with Keith Allen, which tried to balance out uh, the the kind of Lotto Lout mm-hmm. image of him. Um, this allegedly English-speaking oaf mm-hmm. needed subtitles to be understood. This was no humorous device. When Mingin multimillionaire Carol talks in his garbled and extreme Norfolk accent, it is impossible to decipher. Extreme Norfolk accent. It's just a fucking Norfolk accent. Okay, he's written phonetically. I'm going to try and say what he's... Honor doi oim guan ng samplers. Translation, on the day I'm going to kill him, simple as. So he's rendered that like uh, phonetically, like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, said the unacceptably absurd blubber mountain as he chatted about his wow. imminent boxing bout against completely forgotten gladiators relic rhino. Wipe flower worm. Wipe the floor with him. <laughs> it goes on like that. Fucking At hell. worst, whenever you had um, stories about whether the lottery is a corrupting influence, whether you can ever be happy with that winning that amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, the two people who would always come up in this was Michael Carroll and um, Eorweth Hoare, who was a convicted rapist who won the lottery while he was in prison. Jesus. It's like, it doesn't, I'm sorry, it just doesn't compare. I'd be well pissed off if somebody put a ball bearing through my window. Mm -hmm. That's not a rapist. No. It's just not. I would be well annoyed if I got woken up at night. It's not rape. It's just not the same thing. Um, but Carol was only ever identified by his criminality when he was in the um, in the papers. Yeah, and this um, coincides with the rise of the Chav phenomenon mm-hmm. in um, in UK media. It was big, big pop sociology business in the noughties. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's really sure where the word Chav came from, um, although I think it's arguably one of the largest cultural contributions Medware's ever made. Because in every single newspaper article, it was in the New York Times, everything. Whenever they talk about Chavs, they say, oh, it was used to describe like Europe's in Chav. Yeah. Every I, single I think time. it's probably, isn't um, it like, um, isn't it, isn't it, um, isn't it like, Traveller, is it like Romney Gypsy it's, or um, Hindu well, Chavi for my is, kid? Yeah, Chavi is Romani for child, and That's it. Um, my parents, uh, my grandparents, grew up in the East End and South London, and I definitely remember when I was a kid hearing people being called Chavi. Yeah, yeah. in the same way no, as I like, remember that. Mate, yeah, you know me old Chavi, yeah, like yeah. that kind of thing. Um, it was also like people made up funny acronyms for it, like Council Housed and Violent yeah. or Cheltenham Average was one I hadn't heard before this, which was to describe young people in Gloucestershire who lack the qualifications to get into the prestigious private college Cheltenham. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, 
a survey of the number of articles mentioning the word chav in British newspapers uh, shows that it was used zero times in 2003, 331 times in 2004, reaching a height of over a thousand mentions in 2005 before declining in 2006 uh, to 473. Oh, like anti-Semitism in the media. Aha. Uh, hey. Um, generally identified as the feral underclass by a society in deep denial about what it had done mm. with its working class, um, or alternately, uh, the unwelcome remnant of an industrial society that had been gutted and put on the scrap heap. Mm-hmm. Um, it usually identifies males as wearing a lot of gold, um, sportswear, um, women as being sexually promiscuous. Um, there's also an element of fear of race mixing yeah. mixed in with that sexual promiscuity. Um, and generally, it's a lot of the sins of consumer culture given to people who, um, like, uh, represented by people who were lower down the social pecking order and so shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been doing it. So, like, yeah. associated with luxury brand, brands like Armani and, and Burberry and things yeah. like that. Um, a standard editorial about Chavs from th- that period went something like this. This was the worst thing I think I've ever read. It's the most vicious thing. Um, Brian Reed in The Mirror in 2005. How many TV documentaries have you watched where some beached whale pulling on a ciggy pleads, I just can't control him? A cue for the camera to pan to a 13-year-old rat boy lolling in front of his PlayStation with a can of tenant super in his hand, grunting, gear us a ciggy or I'll put my fist through your fucking jaw. To which mum replies, I blame the teachers myself, before passing the ju- junior the box of B&H and telling him to save one for his dad who's sleeping off his afternoon bender on the couch. It's ah, like, yes. It's like fucking um, Garth Marenghi when he's talking it's about Garth fucking Glasgow. He's talking about Scottish people. Yes, it's exactly that. Jesus. <laughs> ah, yes. The wash your hands generation of parents who believe it's someone else's job to teach their kids right from wrong, while their job is to throw at them however much junk food, cash, bling, and white goods. White goods? (laughs) Fridges? It takes to keep them off their backs. White goods? I mean, unless they're talking about, like, electronics, like stereos and shit like that. I think they mean that. That's not a white good, though. No, they... Is it? No, well, I, I, I don't remember... I don't remember the youth when I was a ki- when I was a teenager being super into like washing machines and fridges. <laughs> but you know, I was always a weirdo. Maybe that's what they were like while I like while we were hanging out in metal clubs. They're all like looking through catalogs at fridges. No, I think they're just talking <laughs> about electronics in general. Yeah. Um. And the government agrees, which is why it's bribing teenagers with £12 a month pocket money to stay on the right side of the law. Well, to anyone who believes the state showering money on spoilt little gits will make them behave, I offer two words. Michael Carroll. He's the knuckle-scraping lump of lard who three years ago received £9.7 from another state-approved scheme called the Lottery, and has since wreaked more (laughs) havoc across Norfolk than an outbreak of turkey tapeworm. Oh my god. No, it's like the... the State, the state-run lottery, <laughs> giving money to rapists and Michael Carroll. Disgusting. <laughs> state-sponsored pocket money is yet another token gesture in an era of token gestures. Just like the government's answer to young Muslims blowing up their fellow citizens oh. is to appoint a task force to monitor them, and no doubt a suicide bomber czar who will be as effective as all those other czars we've totally forgotten about. Let's admit the link between suicide bombers and Asbo Yobs. 
Wow. Yes. You th- you children, you <laughs> sit here in the year of our Lord 2020 going, oh, what a spicy take. Bullshit. <laughs> this, guy, this guy has just run right through and called like... 30% of the British population functionally no different to a suicide bomber. <laughs> because they... You are like babies. Because they smoke super to... kings and wear feeler. Yeah. And probably have a gold sovereign ring. <laughs> the root cause of their contempt for civilised behaviour, <laughs> see, clever, he can do that, clash of civilizations and... Yeah writing graffiti on a wall Uh, (laughs) the contempt for civilized behavior is apathetic parents allowing them an up yours mindset british muslims have always prided themselves on strictness yet a minority of today's parents faced with a generation rebelling against the timidity of their forefathers choose to ignore fundamental problems so as long as their son doesn't come home smelling of bacardi breezes this was 2005 They're quite happy to let him attend radical mosques. Remember a watermelon Bacardi breeze? That was a hot. I'd love it. Relaxing on a hot summer's afternoon (laughs) with a crate of watermelon Bacardi breezes. Oh, shit. I remember drinking watermelon Bacardi breezes. That fucking lemon hooch. Do you remember that when they first tried to do Alco Pops? So fucking acidic. It was really good. Um, if he looks troubled and falls behind with his studies, the solution is to send him to a madrasa in Pakistan for a strict Islamic education. And if he's a changed man when he returns to his native streets, that can only be a good thing. No wonder some young British Muslims feel like misfits. No wonder the families of our suicide bombers didn't know they'd been brainwashed because they didn't stop to check. So long as they found a Quran in their coat pocket, not a packet of Durex, they turned a blind eye towards Mecca. Just like the parents of Asbo Yobs, who don't care if little Johnny is out all hours joyriding and bottling pensioners. What can they do? It's society's fault, in it? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, boy. It's like... It's the Officer Krupke song by way of um, Garth Marenghi. <laughs> yeah, so like, um, as you can see, uh, consumption, uh, spectacular consumption of goods is exactly the same Records. as planting a nail bomb in boots. Yeah. Um, and as the 2000s continued, you'd get more kind of pop culture portrayals of... Um, this like new feral undercross, this new thing that yeah. uh, had just come up. Um, and, you know, their consumption is always portrayed as wildly excessive, like in that, in that editorial. Um, you would think they were fucking Renaissance Kings. Yeah. That was when they given the hoodies like, in shopping centers, isn't it? It is. Yeah. In fact, um, they banned hoodies and, uh, in fact, in 2008, a campaign by the DWP used a poster depicting a very large woman with scraped back hair, large hoop earrings, and a telescopic sight zooming in on her with a caption reading, we're closing in. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I thought it had all gone away. Um, the most recent tweet, actually, I could find about chavs generally. Mm. Um, it was, so the England rugby team are going to use Umbro as a kit provider. Yeah. Um, and they put the little like sponsorship logo in the corner and, of the chest. And there is a bunch of middle-aged men in the replies from this announcement Real talking angry. about how Umbro isn't, isn't suitable for the England rugby team because it's a sports <laughs> direct chad product. <laughs> Incredible. Not... <laughs> this isn't classy enough for rugby. Not rugby. <laughs> I mean, what I found weird going back and actually looking at the phenomenon was, like, when it came out in like two thousand three, it was presented as chav spotting. So yeah. 
the boundaries between who was a Chav and who wasn't a Chav were drawn largely through yeah, mockery, pop mm-hmm. culture figures. And the, when the phenomenon surfaced, it became this like voyeuristic thing, which was fucking really weird to me because like I knew about Chavs, like like the word and what it referred to from where I grew up, like who I, like who I grew up with and around, mm-hmm. right? Um, a Chav is a particular type of person with a range of distinct mor- uh, aesthetic choices, which then act as moral markers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I've got uh, a quote from Bourdieu here, which uh, if we have a soundboard, this is where I put in like that rave klaxon. <laughs> because like I really want to quote him a lot more. It's very good. Um, in matters of taste, more than anywhere else, all determination is negation, and tastes are perhaps first and foremost distastes, disgust provoked by horror or visceral intolerance, sick-making, of the tastes of others. The most intolerable thing for those who regard themselves as possessors of legitimate culture is the sacrilegious reuniting of tastes, which tastes dicta- which taste dictates should be separated. So what you have is... Um, luxury brands made cheap, made available in the UK to to a majority for the first time. And rather than it being the preserve of a cultural elite, um, it's being adopted by chav, like like by yeah. chavs, and they're wearing it. And this is then transformed. The disgust that people feel at this is interpreted as a moral failing. So mm-hmm. it it spirals into one or the other because we're not really talking about just the underclass or just people wearing like dodgy tracksuits. It's the way that these two things got melded together in like a moral, a moral crisis, almost like a moral panic. Yeah. You know? Um, And like, yeah, when I was a kid, like I didn't understand why it was chav spotting. I mean, it's like from 2003 to 2008, there were fucking actual books honest to God books that you could buy that would give you a list of things to look out for if you were looking for a chav. And like, I just, I just grew up around that. Like I wanted the stuff my friends had, like I wanted yeah. those Reeboks and that LS tracksuits. Yeah. You know, but until I got old enough to distinguish myself into a subculture, like as a goth, and then I wanted what they had, which was like the new rock boots and the baggy jeans and all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In 2004, there was literally like news articles about how there was the UK's first chavologist. Mm. um oh, fuck, verity jennings that. yeah verity jennings um tried to consider two theories that chav is a subculture which just differentiates itself from the rest of society and that it's a term describing undescribable features undesirable features picked upon by the media um and it's like what the fuck it's it's not a subculture because no one identifies as it no one came up and said i'm a chav mm. like no no one ever did that not until a lot later yeah but what it what it did was it was a way of turning the this like unescapable movement of what had happened in the working class and the the class structure of Britain as a whole, and it turns that difficult conversation into something easy, something cultural, yeah, something that was identifiable on site through consumption and therefore tolerable, or more accurately intolerable yeah. to a middle class gaze. It recontextualized class as a matter of personal choice and provided a handy list of juicy, juicy meaning with a lot of tick boxes that you, as a not a chav, could look out for. Yeah. And yeah, that's the the main thing. It's that that chav spotting thing, even by partaking in the activity, you distinguished your what you were talking about. Yeah. And even if you were working class, like that's something that like both liberal commentators and uh, conservative commentators missed at the time, was that this was also a way of quote-unquote good working class people from distinguishing themselves Mm. so you have 
the work the working class who works and then the non-working working class yeah and you could feel good if you still had a job if you still had like you were still earning and you could feel good because you were allowed to punch sideways against people who who weren't working yeah um and this was what made michael carroll stand out Although his moniker, King of the Chavs, was given to him by the sun, he embraced it and even put it on the side of, of some of his cars. And he might have been the earliest person to call himself, like to actually refer to himself as a Chav, to take on that that moniker. Maybe. That's probably one. Maybe not. Didn't um, the streets do that shit? I remember he used to dress like one all the time. He did, but I don't know that he ever... Hmm, called himself that. I don't know that he ever did specifically the Chav thing. Because, I mean, like... People like Daniela Westbrook, yeah. um, even like David Be- David and Victoria Beckham, which yeah. I have no idea where that. It's like, of course, he's wearing sportswear. He's like a professional footballer. Yeah, you know it, that was a that was a weird one. Um, I don't think it quite embodied those tropes. Definitely not until like Vicky Pollard started mm. being mm-hmm. mentioned as yeah. a thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so yeah, a lot of um, commentary on Carol focused on these aesthetic markers that that were delineated chavs from quote unquote normal people. Yeah, uh, they focused on his clothing choices, his way, his con- his consumption, even of drugs. It focuses yeah. on how much he was consuming, and as he hasn't had hadn't chosen to invest his money, at least not in the accepted private way, soberly, slowly, quietly. As outwardly he hadn't become a member of the investing classes, it was assumed that he was wasting it. As I said before, he had no links with the network of class institutions that usually help rich people out with money. So one of the main problems, by his own admission, seems to be that he genuinely didn't know what he should be spending his money on. Um, Something which a number of commentators had some very good ideas on. Here's an excerpt from Jeremy Carl's 2010 book, You Couldn't Make It Up. And it's true, he couldn't make it up, but he could make it more likely with a few tinnies distributed backstage. Um, (laughs) I, like most people, was shocked, appalled, and probably more than just a little jealous when the lurid Uh... stories about the man who was dubbed King of the Chavs first broke. He bought a garish mansion. Garish? It was a house. Mm. He bought a garish mansion and played host to an endless stream of noisy, wild, drug-fueled parties. He and his mates apparently thought nothing of using the land outside his property for loud gatherings at all hours. Neighbours were driven away from the homes they loved and the close community they felt uh, they felt because this one selfish lout had destroyed... Because of what this one selfish lout had destroyed without a single thought for anyone else. For so long, I was right with them and everyone else who condemned his behavior. If it had been in my power back then, I would have said without hesitation, lock this menace up. (laughs) Um, In fact, if I had been his neighbor, I would have made a strong case for freezing his assets too. Fuck. Yeah. If his new money was the root of all the criminality and antisocial nuisances and brought antisocial nuisances brought to my doorstep, I would have lobbied for the authorities to take it back for safekeeping until he'd done some time and proved he had been educated to the point where he could spend it more maturely. (laughs) If and when it got returned to him, I would have wanted to see him monitored and put on some sort of three strikes rule, mess up three times and the money would be fed back into the lotto good causes pot. Wow, Jeremy Kyle <laughs> doing My Fair Lady with Michael Carroll <laughs> to give him pocket money. He was an idiot and a menace when aged just 19, he was given 10 million to put in the bank. Thereafter, he became an outright 
danger to society, mm. a violent man and a huge user of drugs and prostitutes. His spending was out of control. He is said to have given away over five million to friends and family. What? Why include Disgusting. that in there? Disgusting waste his of money. His spending is out of control. He bought a house for his auntie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. spent £200,000 on gold chains for them and himself. He then got into narcotics and spent £2,000 a day on crack as he turned his mansion into one big drug den. Now, as a left-winger, as a socialist, I don't particularly want anyone to have £10 million. Nope. I also don't particularly want to get precious about seizing assets. However, <laughs> if you are going to look at the Michael Carroll case and say that the criteria for surrendering money for uh, relieving assets from rich people is he took a load of drugs in his own home yeah. and was quite noisy. Yeah. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. <laughs> I'm not even going to go the spike through and say, oh, he's got an un irrepressible working class joie de vivre. Yeah. Um, and say he shouldn't be repressed in such a way. It's illiberal. I'm just saying that maybe this is indicative of a much deeper authoritarian streak that has never quite gone away in the British psyche. Yeah, yeah. Um, he finishes, I know we can't and that we shouldn't close the door to people from any social background winning such huge sums of money, but society <laughs> must at some point... Oh, can you imagine where the lottery was? If they, if like, if they did what they what they kind of want to do, which is you're not allowed to do the lottery until until you know you've got a degree or something, the yeah. lottery would wouldn't exist. The lottery is a disgusting <laughs> organization. I hate gambling, but the lottery is a disgusting organization which feeds off the feeds off working classes. And if it was, oh, I fucking hate them. Oh. and it's just like I oh, just oh you need to like oh look I see your bank account has now your savings has just reached ten thousand pounds I'm sorry but you're not allowed to save any more money until you do this HND <laughs> it's it's straight up saying that it, okay if you're looking at capitalist relations he didn't earn it he didn't get it mm. through like a grand scheme he got it through a lottery in the hierarchy of moral ways to earn money this is nowhere it's just freakish luck yeah and all that anyone talks about is how illegitimate it is yeah that this guy has money it's unfair but more more yeah it's illegitimate it's it's yeah. unlawful it is against the law yeah for this guy to have that money um so mikey's autobiography finishes in 2006 when he gets out of prison for those affray charges um, he constantly reiterates that he's going straight and how he's setting up investments with his remaining money in Dubai. Um, he comments on the uh, Keith Allen documentary that he didn't actually live in that big, awful house with the 10 Rottweilers, the scrap cars and all the crap everywhere. In fact, I lived on a respectable estate among businessmen, decent retired folk and others pillars of the community. So you can see towards the end of the book, he's slowly learning the rules. He's learning yeah. the things he has to say in order to be absolved, mm -hmm. which is you have to live around businessmen mm -hmm. and pensioners. Mm -hmm. That is the acceptable way of being mm. in this particular uh, moral universe. Um, and as he couldn't rely on those traditional rich person networks, you see him trying to grasp at the other institution that protects people suddenly made super rich, 
celebrity. Mm. Um, he participated in a boxing, a charity boxing match against Rhino from Gladiators, um, who beat him unmerciful because he was really coked up and didn't bother to do anything for it. Yeah. Um, who cares? Um, he starts to talk about like media perception and things to say to the media. He starts to list reporters who he really likes, who are really nice to him, who come over his house and they're like respectful towards him. Huh. Um, later on, um, the, 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 the news stories about him start to dwindle um, other than the same paper, probably every six months saying that he had, you know, lost all his money. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple detailing like failed investments and suicide attempts. Um, um, by 2016, he existed as just a cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, the Sun reported that Michael Carroll's story was proof that money doesn't buy happiness. Um, they reported uh, that his £320,000 six-bedroom house, The Grange, had been left in ruins with dog shit pressed in the carpet. Uh, broken furniture and tiles ripped up from uh, floors and from the walls. They reported this in 2016 when he sold it in 2010. They only put this story up because on the same day, news came through about uh, Monkey's former uncle who had uh, murdered his wife and then taken his own life. No uh-huh. indication what date the pictures of the house were from or that this was his damage, yeah. but the moral was clear. This is a type, and mm. that's what you can expect from that type if you give them money yeah it was his house like if he has dog shit in the carpet he has to live with dog shit in the carpet yeah maybe that's just like my own particular like moral perspective on it but i in a very unsocialist sense i'm kind of like as as long as people aren't doing harm let people get on with stuff Mm. for the most part I don't know. It's maybe a remnant from my old libertarian. I'll be starting this next year. I'll be fine. I'll be saying the police should have gone into his should have gone into his house. Yeah. Um, by 2019, the Sun newspaper reported that he was working 12-hour shifts at a fuel merchant's in Elgin, Scotland. He said, "Life isn't all about money. It sounds completely crazy, but I've never been happier than since I returned to work. Going broke is the best thing that happened to me, and believe me, I had a great time doing it." And now. The reports about him tend to focus on the meniality of his work or the long hours um, of his new employment. Uh, so that's the moral lesson is that corruption yeah. is purged through hard, menial work. Yeah. His natural station. Yeah, his natural place um, is long hours and low pay. Yeah. And I would like to point out that uh, the thing about Michael Carroll that everyone remembers, uh, the booze, the getting into trouble while in cars, uh, would later be fictionalized to great effect by Top Gear, which everybody seems to fucking love. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The natural order had been restored. No one felt the need to go after him anymore. Um, So as for the... uh, the, the Chav phenomenon generally, what's interesting about the Michael Carroll tale is how it made up one part of a tapestry of stories over the 2000s, how problem people were conceptualized as a class of their own. One of the few times a kind of pseudo class analysis, albeit a, a, an ide, ideational one rather than a material one, uh, one of the few times it got into the, the mainstream press. Because, um, you know, try and address the middle class as a class and you'll get a thousand stories about how everyone's different and everyone's in a different situation. Anytime Labour tried to talk about what the top rate of tax would be, it would be, well, £70,000 isn't rich. There's all these different stories from all these different people. They're all individuals and all different. Nothing unites them. Their class relationship, they don't have one. But it was very easy for the media to represent individual Trav cases. Um, Mikey Carroll, Jamie Bolger's killers. <laughs> Yeah. was kind of yeah. part of the an early re- uh, kind of example of that kind of thing. You see how Mikey isn't even in the same league as them, really, but I can't think of particular incidents to, to compare. 
how the media use those individual cases to present a, a, an aggregate of people on benefits or single mothers or, or whatever being conceptualized as a group mm. at spectacular moments. The only other one I can think of later is the 2011 riots. Yeah. Um, and they kind of made up the broken Britain narrative that, that, that Cameron used as part of his social policy. Mm. Um, all of the, any collectivity for this particular group all came from outside and all came from, from media representation. And it was always presented as somewhat hidden all the way through. Um, it wasn't present in front of you, so you had to be given a list to identify it, um, which gave the reader, the viewer, a sense of separateness from mm. those people, mm. but also plausible deniability from what had produced those people. The aesthetic and cultural things that that they they did were considered condemnations of an overly consumerist culture, but they never actually kind of got into the material analysis of as a bunch of people who've been without work for generations because of what happened to industrial areas and to like the labouring population in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I'd just like to finish off by like it's interesting how that's how that's changed um you first got an inkling of what was going to happen when the chav phenomenon turned into white working class boys do worse in school mm. so very slowly they took certain ideas the mainstream took certain ideas from i'd say liberal commentators in the early 2000s about underachievement workless households all that kind of stuff yeah and slowly that narrative started to change rather than being an object of fear they were now considered the left behinds mm. everyone else had gone so far forward and from about weirdly enough about 2008 to 2010 um the the recrimination and the anger kind of started to dwindle away and tabloid press started moving around towards other populations as focuses of of class hatred yeah. and started using what they were f had formerly called chabs yeah. as left-behind people. I would probably argue that this paradoxically started with, obviously, the financial crash and with media like Benefit Street. Mm. I think in the aftermath of like the recession and austerity, um, which started poverty creeping up towards the middle class, especially yeah. the kind of home-owning Thatcherite, lower middle class, home-owning pensioners, people like that, um, you couldn't live and film with communities of these non-persons, how they tried to earn, how their relationship with institutions and councils and with each other. You couldn't see those stories of them struggling in austerity, under austerity without seeing the similarities between their stories and the effect that austerity was having on these other populations who usually weren't subjected to those economic shocks in, yeah. in the 90s and, and the 2000s. Um, and I think like culturally it started to shift with people like uh, people start to embrace that stereotype. Um, Lily Allen mm. thinking of particularly had the like hoop earrings. And of course, what do we end up with at the tail end of the Chaz, of the Chaz phenomenon? Michael goes, we end up with, ah, <laughs> no. Ah, okay. Okay. Right. Who is the end? What, what is the logical result of turning the Chav phenomenon on its head and saying that these are just simple patriotic people and they are the bedrock of the UK? <laughs> Who do we end up with? That's right, Jess Phillips. Uh, um, vaguely authentocrat, yeah. hoop earrings, yeah. slightly larger woman, talks like a mum in a playground. And, uh, I mean, Joe Kennedy argues that um, adopting, like... This this blue labour thing um, yeah. of 
trying to listen, trying to to, to conceptualise the white working class as the base you have to appeal for to yeah. um, enact policy and to get electoral success, comes from a certain um, sense of guilt. Yeah. Um, about the fact that New Labour really didn't do anything to remedy the economic situation of the working class in its long, long tenure when yeah. they had all the manoeuvring room, all the electoral room, all the economic room that they could have wanted in order to to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think like the obvious end result of that, that's that's what that's why everybody stands Jess Phillips so hard. She's there. She's an authenticrat saint come to solve the consciences of everybody who suggested demolishing Liverpool or Swansea mm. in mm. in the 90s and the 80s, you know, removing the population to more economically viable cities. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, people lost the notion that there was this vague social progression happening under New Labour. And new labor or when it even when it went in, into its authoritarian turn it said oh well we're progressing society we've got this open multicultural society and it's only being stopped by these regressive forces which mm. were the conservatives largely yeah. and later on this feral underclass yeah um and it was a way of talking about the deracinated working class in a way that incorporated them back into society in a way that was beneficial to the politics of austerity, to the post-recession politics. You know, patriotic, simple, honest people yeah. who just wanted sensible controls on immigration but were shut out, the same media that specifically tried to shut out chaps mm -hmm. from any kind of conversation. Um, and suddenly in like 2017, 2018, everybody's from a council estate. Everybody yeah. grew up going to a to quote the tweet, going to private school, but having fuck all money throughout. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, commentators reaching back fucking decades to prove their, their working class or their, their chav credentials. Yeah. Um, and Michael Carroll's story cross-sections this period almost perfectly, starting in 2002 when Blairism's authoritarian term was settling in. And in May 2010, he was reported to have applied for his old job as a bin man. The same month, Cameron became PM. Wow. It's a it's a weird little uh, things, and I mean this new attitude towards the working class is oh you know they're the working class they have life and culture leave them alone you prurient middle class scolds yeah um, is that ch that chav spotting phenomenon again turned on its head yeah it's this new normal this new like right wing populism that that lords the honest white working class it's still worshiping individuality it's still um it's individualized it's individual people while working class people are allowed are to be allowed a maximum level of autonomy any question of the working class actually exerting their own power against other classes collectively is absolutely forbidden mm -hmm. they're allowed to have their own organizations in this case startups mm -hmm. or home working or zero hours contracts this allows them autonomy and flexibility that's that's how it's presented um but they're not allowed to ever disrupt the thing that gave gave them that organization you know yeah um it's it's a sort of weird perversion of nothing is too good for the working class sort of like i try to conceptualize this like try to do the reverse of nothing is too good for the working class and the only thing i can think is sort of like the working class are too good for anything yeah they're too good for anything to happen to them they're too pure don't try and dis don't yeah don't try and disturb them because they, they you'll destroy this precious 
flower of working class culture. It's it's a very very odd thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just want to end on uh, Michael Carroll wrote quite a few poems. Yeah. At the end of his book, uh, while he was in prison, and okay. uh, I want to read one out. And it sort of uh, explains this turn in a maybe a better way than I can. Mm-hmm. The poem's called Rising Crime. The PM's been on the telly again. He's got his own FBI. He wants to tackle organized crime, but it's all pie in the sky. He's had 10 years to do the job. He's failed. He hasn't a clue on how to solve our rising crime rate. He doesn't know what to do. The populace is so fed up. The police have no respect. They will not do their jobs these days. Of that we can expect. They're frightened of upsetting the minorities out there, so get a grip and sort it out, or we'll vote you out, Herr Blair. If your house is getting burgled, you'll get no help from the Met. If your car is parked on a yellow line, a ticket you will get. If you drive your car at 42 in a zone that's 40 mile, they'll take your photo, then fine you, so don't forget to smile. Poor Tony Martin did that thing that all of us would do. They locked him up, but let's be fair, it could be me or you. If someone breaks into your house, the police should us not fail. They have to make us all feel safe and put the crooks in jail. Okay, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to come.